Stay hungry, stay foolish. Corporations have changed the world radically in so many areas. Medicine, consumer goods, transport, finance, agriculture, entertainment, communications. And they've done so by combining organizational abilities with a unique human capacity to imagine. The ability to see and create things that have never existed. We welcome the author of The Imagination Machine, How to Spark New Ideas and Create Your Company's Future, Martin Reeves, Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Aidan. Pleased to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And behind me, I have a copy of the book Up for Grabs. It's beautifully illustrated, rich in imagery and mental models throughout. And I highly recommend you sign up to the Innovation Show.io newsletter to be in with a chance to win that book. Martin, let's dive straight into it. The book's journey begins by understanding what this familiar but ill-defined capacity is all about. What is imagination? How does it work? And how can it be put to work? I'd love you to take us through the journey of what imagination is, and then we'll look at the machine element of the title. Imagination is a capacity that we all have, um, all, all humans have. Um, animals don't really have it, except in a very limited form in some cases. It's the ability to imagine things which could be the case, but are not the case. So seeing the world as it is not. And... Um, this uh, capacity has a lot to do with corporations because, uh, as you said in your introduction, corporations on long time scales have this miraculous capacity to take things which are intangible ideas, ill-defined ideas, and to convert them into the new boring, things that are not only uh, actualized, but so prevalent that we, we take them for granted, like uh, all of the inventions of, uh, of, of modern life. And um, But the paradox is that this ability that we all have, we use intuitively. So we have it as individuals, but our corporations, our institutions don't necessarily have it. And the book essentially therefore tries to make explicit what is intuitive to individuals. You know, why? Because we need that capacity for all of the reasons that you gave. So that explains the imagination part of the title. The machine part of the title also has a significance. I'd love you to take us through that. Well, there's a lot of obsession with um, with, with technology, uh, you know, with um, algorithms. Um, and um, so we wanted to assert that um, we wanted to catch attention. Um, and actually, the book deals with the topic of catching attention. There are different ways of naming things. So we named the book deliberately, provocatively, The Imagination Machine. Now, those words may not appear to go together, um, but really they do because a machine is um, something which does useful work. And we think that imagination is not this unruly, unbridled force that can't possibly be harnessed. It can be harnessed. So as we strive for our technology machines, um, let's think about our human machines, our, our human tools too. And let's think about hybrid machines. Let's think about how to combine the synergies of uh, machine cognition and, and, and human cognition. So you could say that the book is a, is a blueprint for building um, a machine which relies on the technology of imagination, which is a wonderful technology. And I love to touch on some of that. I, I loved what you said there, because it's like, when I was a kid, I used to do the connecting the dots uh, puzzles, and you connect the dots of how an organization can do this. But I wanted to build on something you said there, you mentioned ambidexterity. But there's an also another term that you introduce in the book, counterfactual thinking, and you tell us, 
When we think counterfactually, we put aside mental models we habitually rely on and create new ones. Here you give the example of Hire, now the largest appliance manufacturer in the world, transformed itself in the 1980s. This is often forgotten about. At the time, the company was in crisis. Again, forgotten about because they're so successful today. The factory was run down and in debt. And the new chairman decided the company would have to move beyond making passable but lackluster refrigerators. I'd love if you introduce this idea and then we'll build on it and we'll connect the dots of imagination. Yes, I wanted to create a vivid uh, anecdote uh, which illustrated the practical importance of imagination. Um, And so I thought the higher story was was quite vivid. Um, So you have this state-owned refrigerator factory that made fairly low-quality, unappealing fridges that often didn't work particularly well or had defects. And you, you have this new um, chairman, Chairman Zhang, who's a great uh, uh, thinker and, and, and leader. And he, so he takes um, tens of um, defective refrigerators from the production line and has them smashed up with a sledgehammer. And if you think about this purely in executional terms or efficiency terms, it, it, it might seem to be rather destructive, rather, rather inefficient. It might seem to be quite a crazy act. But in a sense, he was signaling that they needed a better mental model, a, a, a better business model. So he was choosing to think counterfactually. He was choosing to think about uh, and to fo- have his organization focused on that which could be the case, which is not the case, that they would become the world's premier white goods company that was probably seemed quite implausible to many people at the time, but that was his counterfactual notion. So counterfactual thinking is the heart of imagination, and it essentially is the ability to think about things that are not the case that could be the case. But it's not the same as unconstrained dreaming because actually it's rooted in causal thinking. Counterfactual thinking doesn't depart from the laws of physics. Um, Hire's vision was not to fly to Mars on on light beams. Um, That would be contrary to the laws of physics as we currently know them. Um, It was to make really great um, household appliances. Um, Not the case, but, 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 but could be the case. And um, this, this process occurs naturally. Um, so there's a, a dominant theory of the brain, the Bayesian theory of the brain, that maintains that um, we have shifting models of reality in our, in our heads, simplifications of reality codified in our minds. And when we see surprises, when we see something that doesn't fit, something that doesn't fit the pattern, then we revise our mental model. So that's a sort of a passive process, uh, an ability we all have. I think one of the big points in our book is that this process can be harnessed and tamed and used deliberately. So you can channel uh, and reinforce the process of of counterfactual thinking. Um, Now, this may seem obvious, but many things which seem obvious are not obvious at an institutional level. Um, If you you think about um, uh, the atmosphere, the the, the culture of a large, successful, um, long-lived corporation, often counterfactual thinking is often shot down um, using um, bullets like uh, the word practicality. That, that's not practical. Um, show me the evidence. Uh, where's, where's the justification? Where are the financials? Um, you, if you took this approach to these emerging ideas, um, we'd never develop a new idea. The, uh, the emerging idea is always quite flimsy and ambiguous uh, compared to the, the well-established idea. And we, may be to, we must be able to handle these two species in, in different ways. I mentioned there the process you bring us through, which is just wonderful. And as you say, we can be deliberate about enabling surprise. But then again, we have to be open to surprise when we come across it. 
And the chapters you describe throughout the book include the seduction, the idea, the collision, the epidemic, the new ordinary, and the encore. Before we explore each one of those, if we have time, let's dispel some myths and misconceptions about imagination because there are so many. Our image of what imagination is and how it works, uh, we think is largely based on uh, the um, uh, romantic period in the in the arts um, 100 years ago or so, um, where we have the image of a solitary thinker with um, divine instantaneous inspiration, um, a special ability that's uh, you know not given to many, given to the to, to the few, and so we have the image of this un- unruly individualistic force uh, bestowed upon a, f- a handful of geniuses that couldn't possibly be uh, managed. So you know therein lie, lies lie all of the myths of imagination that it's uh, solitary, it's instantaneous, it's individual, it's so unruly it couldn't be. Uh, it couldn't be possibly managed. And also there's a sort of a nuance that it's somewhat ethereal. It might be entertaining for artistic purposes, but is it of any practical, is it of any practical use? So we think imagination is uh, immensely practical. Um, uh, you know, the least practical strategy in the world is to continue to do what you do. Um, it will certainly uh, fail more quickly than if you explore other options. We believe that um, imagination can be individual, and a lot of the creativity literature deals with individual creativity. But if ideas don't spread, if it is not social, then essentially you'll have solitary uh, fantasies, you'll have self-satisfaction, you won't actually change the world. Um, we believe that it is um, it is unruly, of course. We don't know the future. We don't know which of the crazy ideas we have might turn out to be possible. Um, but on the other hand, why shy away from imagination in particular? Business deals every day with... Um, unpredictable, complex, aspect, complex, complex aspects of human nature, such as um, personnel management, team composition, consumer psychology, consumer anthropology. Why not imagination? Um, we also believe that it's not the instantaneous act. There may be some instantaneous shifts in mental models, um, but as I said earlier, you have to see through the whole process. You have to take that and then build on that through this journey, through the six stages that you laid out, um, so that you end up with the with the new ordinary and then the completion of the cycle, the self-disruption of the new ordinary, so that you're not just imagining once. Success in business is not rare nowadays. Sustained success is uh, is very rare. So you have to repeat this as an ongoing act. I'm sure one of the things you see, is, as many of us experience, is the busyness of business world and how the focus is on exploit the focus is on the business and the next quarter and the next month even in many cases and therefore it doesn't leave much room for surprise or inspiration and you tell us that this is key to fostering inspiration we need to first see and then comprehend these are two acts that we can be deliberate about but are absolutely key in order to enable imagination one of the enemies of imagination is is busyness i mean the the size and the complexity of modern corporations um, we could be 100% flat out on execution all of the time. And, and you know, many of us are. Um, so I, I like this phrase, which unfortunately I didn't invent, but I, I appropriated, which is that busy is the new stupid. Bus- busy crowds out uh, cr- creativity. Um, you know, uh, the, the other two things to watch out for, which are corrosive of uh, imagination on fundamental level, one of them is fear. You know, if you leave this adjustment, the creation of the new mental model, the self-disruption, until it is a necessity, you're actually being disrupted by somebody else, uh, then you're probably in a state of uh, pressure and fear 
and you're not going to think very expansively. And the other one is complacency. There's nothing more toxic to future success than past success. If you uh, if you sit there congratulating yourself on your um, uh, on your dominant market share and uh, uh, and, the, and, the, and the quality of your talent and your profitability, then you're essentially celebrating your your glorious past. You know, at the um, at the expense of the future. But if you get, if you get past those barriers, the, the first stage is indeed surprise. You know, um, uh, from a neurological point of view, we we imagine we we construct alternative models of the world in our heads because we see something that doesn't fit. Surprise and surprise comes in three flavors. Uh, it's it's accidents. You were trying to do something and something else happened, um, or um, anomalies, which is normally consumers do this, but in this case they did something else. Um, and the other one is analogies, which is a sort of internal surprise, which is, ah, this is a bit like something else. You know, what if we explore that, uh, that, that, that analogy? Um, so in order to um, avail yourself of surprise, I think some very basic things have to be true. The first thing is you have to see the surprise. And an organization is a little bit like a sphere. The ratio of the surface area to the volume decreases the bigger it gets. In other words, corporations by default become more and more internally facing so how can you adapt to or harness the surprise that you don't even see? So you have to perceive the surprise. Um, and then you have to actually see it because sometimes we, there are things in plain sight that we don't see. You know, physiologically, we may uh, perceive them, but mentally, we don't register them. And, and that's because a lot of corporations think in terms of averages um, and aggregates. You know, on average, what is true? Whereas... Um, to 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 be to harness surprise, you really have to think like a novelist. That you have to look at the particular details, the individual cases, and uh, be inspired by them. Um, so you have to notice, and also you have to care. And um, you know, either end of the spectrum of caring can work. You know, aggravations can work, which is, you know, I find the imperfection of this product irritating, or I identify with the consumer's irritation with the complexity of my insurance contract, or whatever it happens to be. But also um, aspirations, ideals, like the like the chairman of Hire saying, you know, I, I really believe that we could be the world's preeminent uh, uh, appliance manufacturer. And I maintain this ideal in spite of evidence to the contrary in the current reality. And eventually the, you know, the idea, the idea triumphs. So we have to see uh, and, 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 and we have to care. And I just read a piece in Harvard Business Review on, on um, double clicking on this, um, this idea of um, harnessing anomalies because Anomalies are also strange precedents of the of the future. A poignant anomaly can be the first uh, the first um, uh, sparrow in the in the spring. It can be the the harbinger of the future, the indicator of the emerging new needs. Uh, if you wait until something's called a trend, uh, you know the, there's an entire industry writing about the well-established trend. You know, for instance, um, you know. We'll all be doing Zoom calls. Well, we are already are all doing Zoom calls, and we all know that that's the case. So that's not very helpful. That trend has probably been arbitraged away um, largely. We're we're interested in the trends and the emerging trends that don't yet have a name. Don't yet have a name, and this is precisely the anomalies I spoke about earlier. One of the ones investigating anomalies that I absolutely loved was the story of on-site technicians and how it impacted sales of diagnostic machines for hospitals in Manhattan. This was a fantastic example. Any, any company has a mental model of its, um, of its business. And um, the problem is that we sometimes mistake them for universal truths or facts. Um, so a, a medical device company had a mental model. It was quite a reasonable mental model. It was the model that 
salesmen sold equipment and technicians repaired it. So ideally, you you wanted as few technicians as possible because they were fixing things that should have broken in the first place and they were additional cost and you needed uh, maximum sales calls and uh, maximum sales productivity. A very reasonable idea, salesmen sell, who could, who could object to that? Um, uh, well, it turned out that there was a, a branch in Manhattan um, that had extraordinarily high productivity. So instead of saying it's a blip or it's not true on average or I can't devote special resources to an individual branch, they, they investigated and they found that um, the, the, the curious thing about what was going on in Manhattan was that the, because of the, uh, <clears throat> the traffic congestion, the technicians tended to stay on site because there were large hospitals. <clears throat> and so it was efficient to, to, to not spend most of your time in a cab and to, and to stay in one hospital. So they used to hang around the corridors and, uh, you know, get to know the doctors and the radiologists and, the, um, and their needs. And it turned out that the, these relationships and this extraordinary inside knowledge of uh, the needs and operations of each hospital was the source of the incredible sales productivity. So it turned out that the, in this particular case, the, the salesmen were not selling. The, the technical relationships were, uh, were the extraordinary selling force. Um, so based upon this, they revised their business model and revised it rather successfully. And there are, I wouldn't say there are hundreds of examples of that, but, but you know, that's, that's a well-precedented pattern that um, if you focus on outliers rather than averages, you can often see things that are very useful that can be made the new average. They can be made the new normal, the new, uh, the new, the new reality. And we see so many times in organizations, and many of our listeners will have experienced this themselves, they're so bu- busy delivering on decisions made in the past or the next quarter or the next month that they don't have time to even spot those anomalies, anomalies, let alone pay any attention to them as well. And later on in the book, you talk about processes and protocols that actually block those opportunities as well. But coming back to mining analogies, I, I absolutely love what you talked about here because you harness these in BCG yourself and you have a, a, a library of analogies as well. And I'd love you to share the three-step process you talk about. You talk about connect, select, and inject. Uh, well, in a way, it's bringing us on to the second stage in the life cycle of an idea. So we've had surprise and, and then we have working the idea because you can't commercialize a headline you know, you may have a headline, which is, um, hey, we need to make the technicians more central to the, uh, to, to the, to the selling effort. Um, but that's not operationalizable. You have to think about all of the details. And how do you do that? Uh, there's a toolkit for counterfactual thinking, for working the idea and elaborating the idea. And most of us probably haven't been taught to, to think that way. I think I, I think I had some instruction in creativity in kindergarten and, and, and nothing ever since, really. Um, um, you know, my, my, my education was concentrated on imparting functional knowledge, ex- expert knowledge to me, you know, deductive problem solving capabilities. So in this toolkit for counterfactual thinking, um, one of the tools is, is working an analogy. Um, because an analogy, um, in other words, something is like something else. Um, you know, for instance, a hospital is a, bit, a little bit like a health club. Both are concerned with health. Um, uh, and if you explore the analogy, you can stretch. You can stretch your thinking. You can you can call into question some of your unspoken assumptions and see new possibilities. Um, so the first stage is to select possible analogies, um, and um, so you might select things to do with um, health and or things to do with uh, with with advice, and um, uh, and the next stage is to think about 
um, aspects of the analogy that you want to mine. Um, so, for example, you might focus, uh, if you were trying to explore new possibilities for hospitals, by looking at analogy with, with, um, with, with gyms and, 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 and health clubs, you might choose to explore the fact that um, the people go to a health club to maintain and enhance their health. They don't go to fix illness, and they actually pay for that service. Um, so you might say, well, what if, a, what if a hospital did that? And then the third stage is the injection of specifics. You say, well, what about this particular element? What about the idea of a subscription service for health enhancement and main maintenance um, uh, out of a hospital? And, you, uh, and, and then that brings you on to a, 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 the, the second part of the toolkit, which is recombination. Uh, often a, the manipulation of a mental model, the evolution of a new mental model, consists in defining the elements and and repermutating the elements, re rearranging, uh, rearranging the elements. So it's a little bit like constructing a Lego model. Um, the bricks don't necessarily change. You can introduce new bricks, but you can also recombine the bricks to create uh, new uh, new structures. So let's give another example because this all builds towards the idea itself. So this is the pre-work almost to prime the mind in order to get to a breakthrough idea. And here you tell us about the great story of Charles Merrill, who co-founded Merrill Lynch. He used this process, you know, probably intuitively in order to get through a, to a breakthrough model. And you give this as a great example. Yes, well, we wanted to give some examples of things that are going on right now. So we have some you know, Silicon Valley companies, but we also wanted to give some examples of ideas that were so successful that we now take them for granted. They're like air. We see them everywhere. We just take them for granted. But at the time, this was not the case. Um, so actually, we've created something called the Napkin Gallery online, which people can look at um, on the, the imaginationmachine.org, um, which contains a lot of resources associated with the book. The Napkin Gallery is, uses art gallery software to display the first instances, the first real-life representations of new mental models. So it might be a sketch or a prototype. And, and um, uh, often we tell stories about inventors noting something down on the back of a napkin. And sometimes they are literally the back of a napkin because the, the idea occurred while, um, while, while dining. And, um, uh, and, and the interesting thing about this gallery, um, and we have you know, the first sketch of Mickey Mouse in there. We have the first, um, the first sketch of the, uh, of, the, of the telephone, the first prototype of the Rubik's Cube. The interesting thing about this gallery is it takes you back to the time when this thing that you now take for granted um, was a very improbable and seemingly impractical proposition. Because, of course, if you were to innovate today, that's, that's what it would be like. So there's a lot that you can learn about seeing these, these ideas in the wild, in, 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 in situ, as it were. So one of the ones I, I like is, is, um, is, is, is Merrill Lynch, because it, Wall Street used to be a, uh, an exclusive gentleman's club um, and, and, and quite a secretive one. There were, there were no standard products. There was no... Um, uh, there was no standard uh, pricing tariff. Um, you had to know somebody who knew somebody. Uh, you probably wouldn't know that person unless you were from a certain strata of society. And that was the world of finance. Um, and uh, so, so Merrill had this idea. Um, Charles Merrill founded Merrill Lynch, but then actually later in his life, he went off to, uh, to be a director of Safeways, the supermarket chain. Um, and... Uh, the company got into trouble at, at, at some point, um, actually during the Great uh, Depression, and they bought him back. And, um, and he and his, his partner uh, basically rethought the model of Wall Street. And 
because of his experience in uh, in retailing, he used the analogy of of mass retailing that also, of course, grew during the the, the depression. And um, so he basically said, why shouldn't our products be available to every person? Why shouldn't the entire populace um, be uh, financially literate? Um, why shouldn't they trust us? There was a great deal of suspicion towards the um, uh, the obscurity of finance at the time. Why shouldn't they trust us? Why shouldn't we have a standard pricing tariff? Why, tariff? Why shouldn't our products be affordable? Why shouldn't they be well understood? Um, and so he, um, he, he mined this analogy. Um, but the, the important point here is it wasn't just an instantaneous thought. It wasn't a one-liner. Um, he spent a whole year sketching and discussing in great detail. He had, you know, marathon conversations. And I was, we were lucky in, the re in researching the book to have access to, um, to, to, to one of his uh, descendants who, who has all of the notes from the time. Wow. So, you know, all of the writings and the sketches. And there was a phenomenal amount of work getting all the details right. And we now take this for granted um, that, you know, this is the way that brokerage works. But at the time, it was not at all the way the brokerage worked. It was a, it was a revolution. It was a turning point in, in, in the evolution of Wall Street. I love this because it shows the origin that imagination drove these businesses in the first place. But then we forget about imagination in the business once it's established. It's always a difficulty. And one of the excuses many people use are constraints like regulation, for example. But you talk about in the book solving for a constraint. You tell us here, in the art of rethinking, addressing constraints can be as valuable as expanding scope and scale. In both cases, you must evolve your counterfactual thinking to adjust a model so that it expands into new areas or to adjust a model so it might work despite an obstacle. This is absolutely essential to imagination and developing new mental models and ultimately to reinventing. Constraints are another uh, powerful tool in the, uh, in the toolkit of counterfactual thinking, um, you know, by imposing a constraint, uh, you often uh, force thinking. Um, so we give the example of um, Hindustan uh, Lever, um, Unilever essentially in India, uh, in the book, where um, Hindustan Lever was a, a very successful company, a very admired company, very innovative, very high performance. Uh, but the truth is, around 2008, they had, uh, their performance had stagnated. They'd lost some of their mojo. And the, um, the CEO uh, of the subsidiary at the time, Nitin Pranjpay, is now the CEO of Unilever, Unilever overall, um, told us that um, one of the things he did to escape this uh, stagnation uh, was to adopt um, an unreasonable goal. Um, so uh, the goal was to double distribution coverage and there were two massive problems associated with this uh, goal. Um, one of them was that they were already the highest um, retail coverage consumer company in India. So why double it? Was it even possible? It seemed like an absurdly ambitious goal. And the, and the second one was that um, you could show with some simple calculations that if by some miracle you achieved this goal, you would lose money because it was simply not economic to distribute to the smallest outlets and the most remote locations uh, in the smallest villages uh, in, in rural India. And um, it, nevertheless, he, he persisted in forcing this goal and, and they actually achieved it. And his reflection um, is that it forced new thinking. Had they adopted a more moderate goal, they would have tried, probably tried very hard, achieved it, but with the same thinking. Um, so it forced a breakthrough. And the particular breakthrough it, it forced was the idea that 
you know, why should the company carry distribute only its own products? Maybe there could be synergies in distributing the products of other companies uh, to make uh, capillary distribution um, uh, economic. So you can see that a constraint or an unreasonable goal actually aids the process. By making the problem more difficult, it forces you, in a sense, to, to think new thoughts. But you can actually do the opposite, interestingly. You can remove a constraint. Um, you know, for example, um, we, get, we, we, we talk about the company Churro in the book. Churro is a, is a, is a, is a, is a peer-to-peer car lending company. Um, so it's private cars that can be rented by private individuals. Um, often luxury cars, um, so you can drive a you know a Lamborghini for an hour or, or something. And the and the constraint was um, insurance that that insurance contract for that particular car with that particular owner with that particular driver, you know, for for one hour one hour for two hours. That's a very hard contract to write. That was a huge constraint. And um, so you know, two ways of thinking about that. Um, one of them is, well, what if we could solve the constraint? What would the model look, if we could, look like if we could solve the constraint? Is it worth putting effort into consulting the constraint? And then the other one is you're thinking creatively about how to solve the constraint. So imposing and removing constraints can both be useful in evolving a mental model. One of the things there about Unilever, I absolutely love that story. But one of the things that all our listeners working in corporate engines can actually take part in is the leader asked everybody to get out and meet their customers. I thought that was really interesting. And for example, one of the amazing insights that came back from that from getting out of the building was that, for example, if you change your packaging to be more sustainable, and actually go, well, we'll put 12 rolls in instead of nine, for example, that actually created a problem for the customers because they couldn't sell that many. So they couldn't afford to have that much in stock at the same time. I thought that was really interesting and really applicable for many of our listeners. It goes back to stage one in a, in a sense, exposing yourself to surprise. So indeed, um, you know, Nitin Pranjpay, the, the CEO, he, you know, he saw that the stagnation can only be solved with by looking at the world in, with, with fresh eyes. And the trouble is they were historically successful company. They thought they knew. They didn't have enough questions. So he sent every person in the company and literally everybody, the caretakers, the receptionists, everybody, um, out into the field to ask five questions. And one of the questions, um, question number three is, what surprises you? What surprised you about our products and how they're used and what our customers think about them? And they went from having um, not enough questions to having hundreds of questions, um, which resulted in the, uh, some of which resulted in the, in the turnaround of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of Unilever in, uh, in, in India. So this, um, you know, pursuit of curiosity and, uh, and observation and anomaly and acts which deliberately break mental models is, is an important part of the process. One of the things as well that arose for me here was you mentioned Bruce Henderson, for example, the founder of BCG of Boston Consulting Group, and how at the early stages of BCG, that you had engaged some outsourced elements, for example, focus groups, and in doing so and being very predictive about the questions that you wanted to ask those focus groups, you removed the element of surprise because there was the white space there what people didn't say oftentimes was as equal and sometimes more important than what they did say. Our own industry, the strategy consulting industry, is, is quite a young one, actually. It was uh, founded in the um, early 60s. Um, and 
our founder Bruce Henderson was was a pioneer. So we we went back and we looked at some of the stories in uh, in my own business and found some interesting ones. And um, the one you referred to was that um, you know early in the history of the company there were some focus groups done and. <clears throat> The, the consultants outsourced the, the focus groups. And so what the managers and the consultants received was a, was a high quality summary. It was actually quite well done. There was, there was focus groups, they were summarized, the conclusions were summarized. Um, but somehow um, Bruce Henderson had a, an intuition that um, it couldn't be that simple, that you know, the, the conclusions should be richer, that there should be more contradictions. Um, so he, uh, he, he went and he, he sat in on and made the, um, the the managers of the client sit on sit in on the uh, on on the focus groups, and and of course then they saw contradictions, anomalies, things that didn't make sense. And amongst these anomalies were what I call poignant anomalies, which are you know very interesting anomalies that hint at uh, hint at new possibilities. So sometimes being overly systematic or overly summarizing or not attending to the details can be very efficient, but it can be very ineffective. I wanted to jump to something else. Another skill, I suppose, if you want to call it that. You tell us the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the test of a, of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And you call a mind with the ability to do this a multi-tracked mind. Let's share information on this because I'm sure many of our listeners have multi-tracked minds and they'd like to be able to put a label on that skill. Well, I think it applies to different levels. Uh, it applies to the level of the in- individual. So if you're, if you're an individual which is in, indulging in stage two, the, the counterfactual thinking, um, you know, how can you increase your capacity to, to think about things that are not the case but could be the case, new, new mental models? One of them is by um, building your stock of worldviews. You know, you, you can... Um, read about um, you know psychology. You can you can read about, if, for instance, in the, in the in the context of the hospital analogy, you could read about medicine. You could read about psychology. You could read about economics. What does this do? This enriches your stock of worldviews, which is ways of perceiving the world, ways of ways of modeling the world. <clears throat> you could also have multiple working hypotheses. You could also have. Um, be exploring multiple um, uh, mental models and assessing them for their uh, for, 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 for their strengths. Um, so the the idea that um, you know the, the problem with a with a, a bit duct, purely deductive mindset is it assumes that there's there's one truth. The truth is observable. It's incontrovertible. Uh, it's constant, and that's the only way of looking at things. Well, that's not very useful if you're trying to to reinvent your business. So this. Ability to have a multi-track mind is is important to the level of individuals. It's also important to the level of companies because if you if you try to serially switch your business model in response to necessity, you know the old one stops working or you're being disrupted. Um, that's awfully risky because you're leaving it you know very late. So um, it's always good to um, to hold the trigger on some self-disruptive moves and probably multiple um, self-disruptive moves. Um, which involves embracing a, a contradiction, this contradiction of, 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 of ambidexterity. Um, so we discuss in the book, um, and also my previous book, your, your Strategy Needs a Strategy, the ways in which you can embrace that contradiction. And one of my favorites is that the, the former CEO of PepsiCo, Indra Nui, um, 
her, her system was essentially to have two heads for each business, a run the business head um, and a destroy the business head. And, uh, and she, she said that her job was to keep them fighting. And she complained that that's not a trivial thing because the, um, the bastions of, the, of today's business often become very good at um, what some people call innovation theater, which is telling great stories about great pilots. Nothing ever really changes, but you know, great stories of innovative efforts. Um, so they fake it essentially, and the and also the mavericks, the people that are trying to destroy the business or introduce the better model, you know, they just get ground down and they feel under underappreciated, and you know, so at some point they get captured by the establishment. So she said, like the job of a CEO is to preserve these um, uh, countervailing forces uh, and, and sides of the, of the of the paradox and make sure that tension is always alive. Run the business, reinvent the business. Those paradoxes and those contrasts exist so much in innovation. And I sometimes feel that often as a change maker, as the maverick, we often condemn the organization as it used to be, the legacy organization, but oftentimes we need it to fuel ourselves in the future. But equally, I find many mavericks, many change makers are extremely humble because they often have to be in order to get buy-in, hand over the credit for ideas, etc. But another con contrast or another paradox that you talk about in the book is the balance between arrogance and humility or ego and humility and ego comes with a bad rap but sometimes we need it and you tell us balancing ego and humility involves holding the principle both principles in mind letting one temper the other so that neither becomes extreme and letting yourself be led by one and then the other at one moment having the ego to push forward a thought at another, the humility to listen generously to a critic. I loved how you phrased this, and this principle is extremely important. I think it is, um, it's more like active schizophrenia than taking a middle ground position because, um, you know, you do need a proposal, you do need a, a, an entrepreneur hero that proposes against all odds the new way of looking at things, a new way of doing things. And that requires active championship. You need somebody that really believes and proposes and, and also is skilled at, um, you know, selling a narrative, selling a heroic narrative, uh, not just the facts about what the widget can do. Often the, the early, in the early stages, the new widget is not, very, it's not as good as the old widget. It's, it's not perfected. Um, there's the, the, the story of, um, you know, Steve Jobs standing on stage with the first iPhone and it, it didn't work very well. They, they they rehearsed and they rehearsed, but the you know they were they were afraid he wasn't actually going to work on stage. Um, uh, of course, he had absolute confidence that eventually it would work, but in the early stages, it doesn't necessarily. So you need this this confidence, this uh, this um, uh, passion, this um, this arrogance, this self belief. Otherwise, you you don't get anywhere. And I'll tell another story about that in a second. Um, but at the same time, um, you need humbleness because. If other people don't deeply listen to that, it's easily dismissible. So you need a culture of, of, of listening. Um, and also, um, as I referred to earlier, um, you know, success is toxic. You know, there has to be a hunger. Uh, if results are quite good and everybody went to the right university and everybody's on a nice promotion track and the company's growing, um, you know, if it ain't broken, why, 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 why fix it? You know, that's, that's toxic too. So you really need um, alternation. Um, in, in, in many senses of the word, you need alternation between proposal and listening and skepticism and reproposal and listening. And you need, you need alternation in that sense. You also need, um, and this is stage four of the idea. So we had, um, 
in the life cycle of ideas. So we had the surprise, uh, we had working the idea, um, uh, we had the collision, which is when you when you test new new prototypes. But you don't test them just for validity; you test them in order to generate more surprises. Um, you're instructed by reality how reality responds to your innovation, how to further evolve uh, evolve your idea. Um, but but stage four is is when ideas become social. It's it's the, the stage that we call the epidemic, which is how do you make ideas spread? And ideas spread through um, heroic stories. They don't spread through facts. They spread through compelling um, uh, compelling stories. They also evolve as they spread because they pass through. Um, cognitively complementary minds. The um, the visionary might pass an idea onto the um, uh, on, onto onto the engineer that works out the details, and uh, they may um, you know pass the idea onto the um, applications engineer that figures out how do you use these things, and they may pass the idea onto the systems thinker that says you know this is the the human and uh, organization and system that could actually industrialize that idea. Um, so, you know, I think I think alternating, I think complementarity of different ways of looking at things, cognitive diversity, and this alternation between confidence and humbleness is is essential in the process. And that's a that's a cultural trait that can be greatly influenced by leaders. You used the story of Lego here to contextualize this Im- this image, this mental model in our heads of the collision. It's a fascinating story, and it gives a great example of bringing the collision to life. Lego is a very interesting company. Um, not surprisingly, we see it as a very imaginative company because Lego the, 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 comes from a Danish word, leg god, which means to play well. Um, essentially, they are in the business of uh, stimulating children's imaginations with their, uh, with their products. Um, but, um, but serious play, learning through play, is actually their mantra managerially too. So every year, the uh, the chairman who um, spent a lot of time with us discussing how how imagination works um, in, in in a company. Um, every year, the chairman stands up and thanks people for doing things that they were not asked to do, and it's very deliberate because um, uh, you know you can't entirely manage the, uh, the 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 process of innovation. You need not you need lots of local uh, lots of lots of lo- local initiative, and as a result of um, learning through play, um, Lego's business model constantly evolves. They, they try things and some things work and some things, some things don't work. And they're, they're constantly learning from the collision between the idea and, and, and reality. So going back to the very beginning, uh, they were a, a carpentry company. They, they built um, you know, wooden houses and churches. And um, there was an economic slump. And so that did, business didn't do very well. So they started to, uh, to make wooden toys. A variety of wooden toys. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, uh, museum um, of the entire history of, of Lego in uh, Billund that I, I visited, and, and looked at the evolution of their products. And then, then they focused on bricks, wooden bricks. Um, and then the um, uh, the the owner uh, at the time um, was exposed to the new uh, plastic injection molding technology. Um, so he spent um, an entire year's profits on. Uh, on investing in the idea of building pl- plastic bricks. Now, plastic bricks was a very improbable choice, actually, because uh, a UK company, uh, Better Build, had uh, sort of failed with the idea of plastic bricks. Um, their, their bricks fell apart uh, easily if you stack them up, and it wasn't a very good product. 
And um, early in the history of Lego, Lego approached Better Build and said, you know, would we be infringing your IP if we, we built plastic bricks? And they basically said, welcome. You know, we, we yeah. couldn't do anything with it. You know, have it. Go for it. it. Was a There's nothing in it. Didn't work. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and um, then they came up with the idea of the, um, the stud and the clutch system, whereby the bricks held together so you could build, you know, big models. Um, and then the, uh, the next revolution was really an idea. It was... Um, uh, so, so um, the, the the owner encountered somebody that said, you know, the trouble with the toys business is it's a bit of this and then one of those and then one of those. It's all one-offs. Um, why is there no system in any in any business? There should be a system. So the owner designed a system of play, and that's where you get to the idea of not just plastic bricks, but a collection of plastic bricks that can be used to create an infinite number of of, of, of creations. Uh, a reusable system and along with the system you have to of course have the building instructions uh, which are understandable by uh, to by a small child that can't read and might also be attractive to a physics professor that wants to build a you know a huge complicated model of a star wars ship or something um so systems of play and then then characters were invented the, the lego men and women um you know that was a revolution to to make it more uh, more more personal and um, and then that led to, you know, theme parks and films. So it was a constant series of um, experiments. And it was the humbleness to say, you know, let us, let us try new things and let, us, let reality teach us which of those new things uh, we should be progressing. Such a fascinating story. And you do a great job of telling it. You build on that and talk about Walt Disney as well and how they evolved this system uh, for the organization. But I wanted to move on to, because we're running out of time, evolvable scripts. I absolutely love this concept. And here you talk about three particular steps, understand, articulate and evolve. And here you share the fascinating story of White Castle. Oftentimes we think as of McDonald's as the first fast food company. But in fact, it's this amazing company, White Castle. Um, there comes a stage where you have a new thing. And, and it works, at least under some circumstances. And you have to scale it so that it can be used on the other side of the planet in situations you haven't anticipated um, and by people that have none of the context. They were not involved in the origination of the idea. So this is codification. Um, if you think about it, um, you know, the Four Seasons Hotel is very famous for, for great customer service. Um, and supposing you, you open a new branch in, in Shanghai, how do you make sure that the people in Shanghai also give great customer service? Um, it, it's probably clients looking for different things, you know, trainees with with no no not only no background but with no shared cultural heritage that you can appeal to, and you can't just tell them what to do because um, you know it's no accident that in the uh, um, in the 1970s during the period of um, you know uh, industrial dispute in um, in in Britain and in Europe, um, the key weapon of the trade unions was to work to rule. If you literally do everything by the book, everything grinds to a halt. So you basically need, um, you need the essence. You need the essence of what are the five things I need to do in order to deliver, deliver great customer service. You need a system. Um, so this might seem like an SOP, a uh, standard, uh, standard operating procedure. This might seem to be the very antithesis of imagination. But in fact, it requires a very special type of imagination to say, when it works, what is the essence of why it works? And what is the extraneous detail? And how can we focus down on the essence? And how can we write the essence, not as a legalistic document um, that is simply a record of, um, of procedures, uh, but how can we write it so that it actually helps somebody to deliver great customer service? And then there's a further element, which is, of course, the world is going to change. 
Um, so how do we make the script evolvable? Not completely random, um, you know, containing the core of what it is necessary to be successful, yet evolvable and customizable uh, in different situations. That's, it's a, a fascinating topic. And of all the topics in the book, this is the one we found um, you know, least well documented. And so it's more, you know, it was, it was, it was great fun to, uh, to, to research. And um, one of the earliest examples we can find of, um, of, of really rigorous and extensive codification was the, the White Castle hamburger chain. Um, so the, the White Castle ham, hamburger chain, like, like many um, uh, great businesses, was, um, uh, was, was founded um, uh, during a period of um, e economic depression. Um, and um, at the time, um, hamburger or, you know, minced meat had a very unsanitary image. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't want to eat it because you don't know exactly which cuts of meat and how old it is. What animal? <laughs> what, what, what animal even. Um, 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 and so you, you, you essentially, the, the, the founders realized this and the founders, um, when we probed into the story, the founders were very aware of this and they designed an entire system. Um, so there's a beautiful photograph in the book um, that, that has the, one of the first stores. And the name of the store is not White Castle. It's the, the White Castle system. You know, they very much conceived it as a system. So what was this system designed to do? The system was designed to give um, reproducible, high-quality results and to communicate hygiene. Um, so, the, the, um, so there were cleanliness procedures. There was training in cleanliness. There was a manual on hygiene. White Castle, the, the very name, um, indicates that it was white porcelain castles. These were easily cleanable, visibly white and clean buildings inside and out um, to communicate the cleanliness to the, um, uh, to, 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 to the customers. Um, and, uh, and of course, in a way, this was the first um, or one of the first uh, sort of industrialized acts of franchising. And it required a very deliberate systematization. And it was a, it was a certain, uh, there was a certain genius in putting together this internally coherent system, this entire system to take something that was not trusted and not scalable and to make it into a, a mass market product that people trusted and, 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 and felt familiar with. And to do this, they actually had their own um, um, construction companies and, you know, cleaning companies and, and paper utensil uh, uh, companies. They had also an entire industrial system wrapped around this, uh, uh, this, this, this franchising system. So a great, um, many great lessons, I think, um, on the art of codification. I love this whole idea of, of putting order on the chaos, the chaos that emerges as imagination, and then you can put codification, you can put procedures on it and protocols they're often seen as negative things but you need them to put order on the chaos martin i just want to remind our audience i have a copy up for grabs of this brilliant book beautifully illustrated fantastically laid out sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter in order to win a copy for yourself martin i'm going to close i have a beautiful quote that i pulled from the book there were many but i picked one but before i do where can people find out more about the book you mentioned there, for example, the napkin library, where can people find about the book about you? And as I'm given my final quote, then I'd love you to be thinking about your final message for those change makers who listen to the show for those CEOs who are looking to make change in their organizations. But first, where can people find you? The one place you can go to find everything we've been talking about is um, the imagination machine.org, um, where you'll find um, you know, where to click to order the book, if that's what you want to do. You'll find some 
articles that uh, discuss different aspects of the, of the of the book. For instance, the anomalies article. You'll find the napkin gallery, this uh, art gallery of these beautiful images fresh out of the brains of the entrepreneurs that uh, you know change the world using corporations. Um, uh, and you're able to to look at these beautiful artifacts and think, you know, what was that like at the time? And, you know, you can ask yourself the question, um, what are napkins and do we have any? And if we had this napkin, this ugly napkin of the first drawing of the telephone, what would we, what would we do with it? Would we throw it in the bin? Would we treasure it? You know, it's very thought provoking. Um, and also um, you, you'll find a new series of videos, which are interviews with leaders. Some of the people that we spoke to in the book, we, we captured them on video talking about what is imagination and why is corporate imagination important? We'll be adding to that collection. Uh, we'll be adding gallery talks. We'll be inviting some of the um, living um, authors. We have some historical examples, but some of the, the living um, architects and authors of some of those exhibits in the gallery to come and talk about their exhibit. Uh, for instance, we, we're going to invite the, uh, the person who invented the now ubiquitous like button on social media about um, how that came about. This, you know, this tiny little sort of icon that, you know, change the game of, um, of, of, of social media. We'll be talking about the origin of that innovation. So that's, that's the place to go, the imaginationmachine.org. The quote I loved, at the heart of the corporation is a mental operating system that holds everything together, a script that can be articulated in rules and processes and strategy, but that is run on people's brains. Writing and enacting such a script is how we reshape reality. When a script is running, it creates an institution, a corporation that orchestrates large amounts of resources and makes new mental models and actions familiar. So eventually, they become the fabric of a new reality. I absolutely loved how you said that, pulled that quote out, and I was like, that's how I'm going to end today's show. Martin, what about you? What's your message for those mavericks and those change makers listening to the show? Probably couldn't be that quote. I wish I'd have said it. <laughs> I you wrote it, man. You wrote it. Um, but I, I, so let me give just uh, an addendum to that, to that quote, which is, you know, the core thesis of the book is um, we need this capability more than ever um, to, in order to sustain our competitiveness, in order to, also in order to uh, retain our utility as, as, as humans, as we, as the routine task of management uh, um, overtaken by, by AI. Um, and also, um, we don't talk about this very much in the book. We talk about it elsewhere. But um, also, I think that uh, business as a whole has gotten a little bit overly financialized and mechanical. And um, you know, there's talk in the post-COVID recovery that many employees may not want to come back to work. They'll be looking at the employee value proposition, the human value proposition of, of, of companies. So to embrace the, the, the full um, uh, set of human attributes, including imagination, is probably a task uh, that the corporations need to embrace to attract the talent that they will need in increasingly a stringent demographics. So that's that's number one. We really need it. Um, so take the mental and creative side of strategy very seriously. And then the, the very good news, um, uh, if you subscribe to my religion, is that it can be harnessed as least as much as any other unpredictable aspect of human affairs. So this is the the first attempt to create a handbook. Uh, of soup to nuts on taking ideas to, uh, to, to, to new realities. Author of The Imagination Machine, How to Spark New Ideas and Create Your Company's Future, Martin Reeves, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aidan.